0: It is great to be here with you. This is the first time I've been in this building. The last time I got to share in fellowship with the folks from Community Baptist was probably about 10 years ago. It was the day of the chartering service. So a lot has happened since then, and we just rejoice with you how the Lord has brought folks to Christ, how God is raising up the folks here in the church, and uh, exciting to hear how the Lord is working. So it's great to be with you. you. Are you feeling confused lately? I'm not not trying to make fun or anything. I've I've been kind of confused. The birds around my house have been confused. The flowers have been confused. Yesterday, the grass was so long, I had to cut it. I could see as my dog watched, frost in the air from his breath. As I cut the grass, there were hailstones still piled up under the gutters, the downspouts. Just a strange, strange day. And just, just for those of you who love history... Do you know what happened in 1886 in this very coming week? The largest one-day snowfall in the, history, the recorded history of Michigan, right? It's so a strange, strange times, yeah. In fact, um, some of you might know it. There's a dentist from our church, Paul Talley, and he has this sign he puts up on his, his, his board in front of his office. And this week it said, Summer is over and spring has finally arrived. So that's kind of, kind of the crazy way things have been lately. But uh, very thankful for the opportunity to be here and uh, just to share God's word with you. Uh, One of the things that I start doing this time of year is I I start all those things that have been ruminating all winter long, you know, positive thoughts about the out of doors. And I enjoy winter. I don't just wait for it to be over. But as winter fades and and spring is here, I start thinking summertime and my mind starts going over camping trips, wilderness trips I've taken, thinking, where am I going to go next? What adventure am I going to pursue? And uh, so I I enjoy those kinds of things, the out-of-doors. And for me, wilderness is an exciting word. For me, wilderness is solitude. I mean, when you get out, and the noisiest thing you can hear is the loons on the lake. Or the coyotes, if you like that melodious sound. You know, just this beautiful and... You, you you can focus on the beauty of God's creation, the solitude, none of the electronic distractions that we all wear on our hips and keep on our desks, and it's just, wow, it's great. But for some folks, wilderness is not exhilarating. It's exhausting, it's scary. And, and the wilderness can be a dangerous place. But what I'd like us to look at this morning is not so much The mechanics of wilderness trips, uh, you know, why you should read Backpacker magazine or anything like that. I'd like to take the metaphor of wilderness, or in this particular case, desert. wilderness comes in several different varieties. And I'd like us to think about remote, isolated, barren, and think about how that plays out in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. In reality, what I want us to focus on is life can have some very challenging, difficult moments to it. Uh, you know, the reality is most of you I don't—I've never had the privilege of getting to know some of you. I have, but for all of you, I don't know what a day is going to bring forth, much less the next year or five or ten. But in life, inevitably, just like Job says, even as sparks of a fire fly upward, so man is born unto trouble. But tough things happen in life. We live in a sin-cursed world, and one day, even the creation is going to be redeemed. We are surrounded by people who have rejected a gracious Lord and Savior. And the sinful acts of other human beings impact our lives. Even we ourselves struggle Feeling conflicted because we want to do what's right, and yet we still, it's easy for us to be drawn away and tempted by our own sin that causes complications in our own lives. And so life can be very difficult. And the question I have for us today that we want to look for an answer in the scripture is when life is really, really hard, where do you turn? When life brings really difficult circumstances, How do you respond? I'd like, if you would, to turn with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. If you look at the first verse in some translations or other translations, it's set off as a superscription, kind of a a notation about the psalm. It says, A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Some translations will put the wilderness of Judah. But the kind of wilderness was a desert, a remote, arid, barren place. And in that circumstance, the context of that provides a dramatic backdrop for the truths that God wanted to teach David, which we should be reminded of, that will will help equip our hearts, prepare our minds to know how to respond even when something really difficult happens to us or something really difficult happens to those that we know and love. We can't control the future, we can't predict the future, but we can know how to respond in the future. Let me uh, start off It says, A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah... Now, if you think about the background, maybe you'll remember some of this, but there are at least two different times in the Scriptures that we know David had extended periods in, in the wilderness, in the desert. Uh, two times when he was running, fleeing. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, this was when David was a very young man. He was fleeing from the person who was king at the time. I may remember who that would have been? Saul, right? He was fleeing from Saul. And you remember how uh, Saul had heard the people singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. I mean, he was the greater warrior. And Saul was jealous, angry, so vengeful that this young servant in the ho- palace, that he took a javelin, tried to practice his Olympic throwing, and nearly speared him against the wall. And David escaped. He, he fled into the wilderness. Saul pursued him with his armies, And, you know, by God's grace, it was David that had the opportunity to take Saul's life in that cave, but he wouldn't. He said, God will give me the grace, God will protect me, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed, the king. But we know that there's another example, and I believe because of some things referenced in our text, that it was this second example of this wilderness experience, this barren, dangerous, difficult time that David spent and that we can see in Second Samuel chapter 15. And I'll just summarize it for you, but I, I think most of you are probably familiar with it. Instead of being a younger man, David is now an older man. He's been king for a number of years. He has a family. And instead of fleeing from an angry king, he's the king. And he's fleeing from someone else very close to him. Anybody remember who it was he was fleeing from? Yeah, you, you can be really brave because I'm hard of hearing and this year, so speak up, okay? Absalom, Absalom. I saw many mouths moving, but I heard you nice and brave there. All right. He's, he's fleeing from Absalom. Absalom was his own son. Why would he be fleeing from Absalom? As Absalom had seen his father's power and, and influence, trying to lead God's people, he, he became jealous. I could do that. I could do that better than he does. And he started a whispering campaign. And he started gathering friends and people and people around him and trying to influence them and, and draw away their loyalty from the God-ordained king to himself. And ultimately, when the plot was ready to be unleashed, after he had wooed the hearts of the people, started fomenting a quiet rebellion, it all came, it all came loose. And if you can imagine this difficult time, your own son breaks into the city, committed to throwing you out of power, not concerned over the welfare of any other extended family members. He just wants the power. And you're running for your life with your immediate family, your immediate most loyal servants, and you're running for your life from your own son. You talk about hard times. That would really be tough to take. And he flees out of Jerusalem and into the wilderness. He crosses the Jordan. Hushai is a trusted counselor. He goes back to Jerusalem to confound the, the bad counsel of a guy named Ahithophel. Big, long, hard to pronounce name. And Zadok, who is a high priest, sends his sons back and forth to keep David apprised of what's going on. And ultimately, a battle is set up. The confrontation, the strategic alignments take place. David has three generals to defend the people that are with him. Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. And ultimately, David gives the order and says, take the young man, but don't harm him. The young man who was trying to take his own life to capture him, don't harm him. But you know how well at least one of the generals listened. And as the story ends, he's riding on his beast and he, he runs in a low-lying tree, a branch snags his long flowing hair and he's stuck hanging there between the tree and the ground and along comes Joab and can't resist the fortuitous opportunity presented to him. So he says, forget what the king said, I know what's better and, and took his life. Now, against that backdrop, I mean, that almost sounds like a soap opera, right? I mean, bad, bad, tough times. Against that backdrop, it's hard to believe that somebody could write the beautiful, God-focused things that we see in Psalm 63. But the reality is, God gave him such grace, gave him such peace, gave him such strength because of how his heart and his mind were focused that when these dreadful times came, it didn't destroy his faith. It didn't undermine his his confidence in God. It drew him closer to God. And, and ultimately, when we face difficult times, the trials of life will either make us bitter or better. Now, those difficult times could come in any any variety, shape, or color you imagine. But ultimately, how we respond to those trials is going to make us Bitter, disillusioned, to draw away and become aloof from God and God's people, or it's going to allow us to grow stronger, more trusting, seeing in new and deeper, more intimate ways the grace of God, the peace that God gives. It's hard to imagine what some folks are called the f- face in life, that God's grace is sufficient, His peace is beyond our full comprehension. And he desires to minister to his people's heart. Now let's, let's look at Psalm 63. All right. And what I want to do, I want to walk through and I want to give you the structure, All right. how it's outlined. Just really simple. Um, then we're going to walk back through it and look at the lessons that we can glean from that. But if you look at verses 1 through 5, and you, you'll see present tense kind of verbs. The right now kind of verbs. He says, You are my God. Uh, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Um, verse 2, he reflects back somewhat. And uh, my soul, verse 5, my soul is satisfied. My mouth offers. And I, I'm i slipping over here. I'm, you use the, new, the international version, right? You won't be offended if I slip, I, I, I think, New American Standard. I've got the NIV right here, so I'll try to remember that. Um, but you can see it, he's talking about the present. Seeking God's presence right here and right now. Now look at verse 6 through 8. Because you can see a difference. Look at his focus now. Verses 6 through 8. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And you can, you can see it starts off with a focus of thinking back. I mean, when we're thinking, it's all the things God has done for me, all the things you've been to me. He's focusing on what God's done for him in the past. And then, verse 9 through 11, he uses future kind of verbs. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go. In the future, they will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. I mean, you can see the future. So he starts out, here's where I am right now. This is what I've got to focus on right here in this moment. And then his mind drifts back and he starts thinking about the past and all the things God had done for him. But he knows that's not the end of the story because God still has things he's going to do in the future. So you can see how his mind, how his perspective is shifting. But what I want us to do is I want us to walk through those three sections and what are the lessons that God intends for us to learn, truths that can sustain and strengthen and and help our focus. So let's go back to the beginning of the psalm. Look at verses 1 through 5. And if you have a handout, the first main point... No trial should distract us from the contemplation of God's presence. No trial should distract us from the contemplation of God's presence. And if you missed that, David's perspective in the present, seeking God's presence in the past, remembering God's faithfulness, in the future, anticipating God's judgment. But the, the first main truth we want to look at in this passage is no trial should distract us from the contemplation of God's presence. Would you think it's fair to say that David had enough distractions going on that we would have at least understood if he had a hard time focusing? It right? wouldn't have to be ADHD to have focus issues right then. When you've got your whole world falling apart. But what did he do? He knew the thing that would sustain him was not focusing on all of his trials, but the God who would minister to him and was ministering to him in his trials. Let's look at these verses as we walk through these first five. He says, "'O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory.'" Because your love is better than my life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Wow. I mean, here's a guy whose life, the bottom just dropped out. The king is now a runaway, struggling for his life, family in tatters but he remembered these truths. If you look at letter A there, we're going to look at verse 1, where it talks about, God, you are my God. Earnestly I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You can see the strength of his desire. Letter A, the strength of his desire for God's presence. He's not seeking to find God as if God is somehow lost but he's desiring to commune with him, to come into his presence, to be strengthened. Two of those phrases in particular, I seek you earnestly. That is, there's a a heightened focus. Like somebody who would be lost or trapped seeking their way out. There was one thing on his mind right now. The first thing is, I want to focus on you, Lord. Early will I seek you. Earnestly will I seek you. And he had a strong Desire for God's presence. I I, I can remember when my wife and I were in college, we were dating at the time, and we had one science professor who liked to do a lot of hands-on training. And we had a geology earth science class, and so he took us spelunking, which is not a study in Russian grammar or anything, but sounds Russian, but spelunking. And so we went cave exploring. And he took us off down this country road, and we pulled off, and all we could see were a few trees and, and all sorts of dried brush. We walked over near a tree, and he pulled back the grass, pulled up a rock, and there was this hole in the ground. Yeah, about the size of a trash can lid. And the next thing you know, people are sliding down. They're going down in, they drop, they get down their all fours, and they crawl along, and all of a sudden, the room underneath the ground opens up. And he, he took us back there for a while, and we got to a point where he said, all right, I want everybody to gather around right here. Everybody sit down. Nobody standing. Just sit down. And we all sat down. He said, all right, I want you to all turn your headlamps off. Okay, that's fine. Give him a rest. Then he turns his headlamp off. And talking about pitch dark. Hand right there. It could be 100 miles away. And you wouldn't, I mean, you just, in right in your face, you couldn't see anything. And then he said, nobody move. In that tone of voice that says, Do it and you die, you know. Okay, I won't move, I won't move. And we heard something go, boom, 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 sploosh. And we figured somewhere around 60 to 80 feet down, there was some water that we couldn't see. We didn't know where the opening was, specifically. And at that point, there was one thing, the only thing, the first thing that I wanted to focus on was, where's my teacher? Where is he? And when he turned that light on, there was nobody that took their eyes off him. Because we knew the only thing that would get us out of that mess was him. Our, our, no, none of us knew where we were or how to get out. We didn't know where the hole was. We just knew it was a long, deep hole with water at the bottom. And in that sense, there was a heightened sense of focus And and when we find ourselves feeling trapped by circumstances, difficulties in life, I mean, you've just got to have your focus. The thing that I want more than anything else is to, to draw near to the Lord that He could minister to my heart that is wounded, that is aching, it's breaking, and I need to really keep my heart focused on the Lord. I will earnestly seek you, Lord. I want to stay close. But then he uses a different picture. He says, My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. And he describes it as if he's in a, a dry and weary land. In a dry and weary land. Now, I, I said I, I enjoy camping. I particularly enjoy camping. My style is the further out, the better. I, I love going to state parks because my wife will come with me. But where I really like to go, few venture forth, few come with me. And that's great. Just get out there in the middle of nowhere. And uh, whether it's canoeing or backpacking, one time I had the experience of... And those of you who know me, I try to be pretty, pretty organized, systematic planning and all that stuff. And one time I forgot to take into account one small detail. It was August. High in the mountains of the Shenandoah in Virginia. And do you know what happens? you know how you get your water at the top of the mountains? Spring water, Okay. Because water quickly goes through the rock layer and down to the streams further down. If you're at the top, you get spring water as it flows out of the rocks. And they usually have some pipes banged into the bedrock so that the water will come out in ways you can get it. Well, I knew where all the springs were on the map that day. I was leading a group of about 15 junior high boys. And the other leaders and I got to the first spring. Dry, zero. Well, it's no problem. I know where the next spring is. It's just another mile or so ahead. Dry. Zero. The next spring's four miles away. I said, come on, guys, we can do it. Come on, let's go. We got about halfway there, and my guys, their canteens were... (gasps) Throw the thing away. It's empty. It's useless. I'm dying of thirst. And I'm going, what will I say to these kids' parents? What like I tell the camp director? I've killed these kids out in the wilderness. They were dying, I mean, not literally, but they were just fainting. They were just sitting down on the side of the, of the trail and going, I can't go any further. And I wasn't in a position to pick them all up and carry them. What, what do you do? And, you know, I wanted to be like a Marine, like my son, and get over it, let's go, you know, and press forward. But I realized I had an emergency. And ultimately, the thing that saved us we hiked off the trail, down the side to the Skyline Drive, and somebody who had two gallon jugs of water saved for their dogs that they were going hiking with gave us all of their water to refill our can... The dogs had not drunk out of it yet. Okay, all right. They gave us all their water, and then when we filled up the boys' canteens, they took us down the side of the mountain, got more water, and we came back and refilled everybody's canteens again, and then we could... Walked a few more miles and stopped for the day. But I, I saw before my very eyes how powerful a force thirst is. They could think of one thing and one thing only. They were thirsty. They, and when they drank that water, they didn't care. In fact, I don't remember if I even told them it came from the plastic milk jugs the dogs had. But they wouldn't have cared anyways. There one thing was, I'm thirsting, I'm thirsting. It's a strong, intense desire. And that's the way David was. He said, my whole soul thirsted for you. My body longed for you. There was a desire. And, And the thing I needed most, the thing I wanted most, was God. You know, so many times it's easy to look at, change my circumstances, God. Make it all go away. Fix it for me. And God is saying, I want to fix you. I'll take care of circumstances, but I want you to long for me. I want you to thirst and hunger for me. Because when I'm close to you, when you rely upon me, and I can really work in your midst. The strength of his desire for God's presence in verse 1. Look at letter B, the basis of his desire for God's presence. Verse 2 and 3. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. The basis for his desire for God's presence was that he had been in the presence of God. Now, granted, that was back a long time ago, different dispensation, and God's presence, the Shekinah glory, came down and was physically manifested in that place. He had been there and he'd seen the power and the glory of God and and how God worked. And he longed for that. He longed to see God do something really special in his life. He longed for a glorious and powerful God who he knew was holy and should be worshipped and could minister to him. And he longed to see God at work to demonstrating his power and glory. letter C, we can also look at the expression of his desire for God's presence. The expression of his desire for God's presence. We look at some key phrases in verse 3 through 5. You can see in verse 3, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Here's a man who's running for his life who says, Lord, it's really hard, but my lips, I just want to praise you because you're a great God. Look at verse 5, what he says. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. He never lost the song in his heart, L- praise on his lips, even in the midst of a difficult time. Verse 4. Verse 4 talks about, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Um, most of our churches, you know, don't do too much of this. I, I, I don't know, the church where I've been at. You know, when I was growing up, that was kind of frowned upon because it, kind of reminded people of certain expressions, but but it's a good biblical phrase. You just can't attach it to charismatic doctrine. But when we lift up our hands unto the Lord, what are we doing? Lord, if there's anything that's going to come that's good to me, it's going to come from you, and I lift up my hands. Lord, I need you to pour out blessings on me. I'm lifting up my hands in dependence as a sign of recognition of who you are. And Lord, I need a blessing from you not some health and wealth prosperity gospel, but Lord, from your good and gracious hand, Lord, I'm your child. You you would not give me a snake. You would give me bread. I'm your child. And Lord, I I lift up my hands to you. His expression of desire for God's presence with uplifted hands in prayer. In verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods with singing lips my mouth will praise you. Now the old authorized translation says, my soul shall be made fat. A kind of a funny, awkward phrase. But it's to eat the richest foods, the, like the, the best marble beef. The good, to enjoy the, the, the overwhelming blessing of the Lord. My soul will be satisfied, just like I would be filled with a banquet feast, physically, my soul will be enriched in the same way. Because you are my great God. How well, if you think of some applications, how well are we prepared with our our mind and our heart, how well are we trained to reflect on the greatness and the goodness of God? I mean, when we we get up against it, you know, things start closing in, those tough times come. Is our heart trained, is our mind trained to to turn toward the Lord, to long for Him, to desire Him, to praise Him? Or do we pull back into ourselves and we kind of hunker down and bitterness and discouragement can creep in? Another application would be, if we don't turn to contemplation about God, then what does occupy our thoughts and feelings when we face trials and tribulation? If we don't contemplate God then our thoughts and feelings will very easily turn into bitterness and discouragement. And the third application, if we don't focus on God's presence in times of ease and prosperity, we will not be inclined to do so when trial and tribulation come. I mean, we have to develop the habit of heart that when difficult times, when good times come, that we focus on the Lord. Something good happens, instead of patting ourselves on the back, we say, God, thank you. Every blessing flows from you. Lord, every strength that I possess, every grace that I experience comes from you. Thank you, God. And then when we face those hardships and trials, our heart is already inclined to remember that good and gracious God who will minister and meet our needs. Well, let's look at verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8, if you look at number 2, Roman numeral 2 on the outline, No trial should keep us from remembering God's faithfulness, and I'll add, or questioning His goodness. No trial should keep us from remembering God's faithfulness or questioning His goodness. Look look at verse 6. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings." My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. You know, honestly, um, I have the 10 9, 8 approach to sleep. You know, count backwards from 10, 10-9, out. All right? My wife has a little more trouble sleeping, and, and I've tried not to add to that, by like keeping her awake snoring or anything. But uh, uh, honestly, sleep does not come hard for me most times. But there is a time when sleep's really tough. What's one of the first things that escapes us when we're going through really hard trials and temptations? What does your mind do? Racing, thinking of why did it happen, how will it ever work out, what will I do, how can I cope, why me, you know, self-pity, and all those things in our minds just swirling. What's the first thing to escape us? The beautiful gift of peaceful, calm sleep. Trials just keep our mind and our body agitated. And here he's saying... And we can understand this. On my bed, I remember you. As I'm laying there awake, I can't sleep. I'm thinking about all the things that are going on in my life all around me. I choose to think about you. On my bed, I remember you. I I reflect about you. I think of you through the watches of the night. I mean, they would divide the night up into, you know, sections of three or four hours each. And you'd have the the late evening, the, the early night, the early after midnight, and then the late night. And you, you just think, of is the night's passing? I mean, I, I don't know. They couldn't use their sundials at night, and I, I know they didn't have an iPhone, so just imagine him just clicking off the hours in his mind, all right? You just think, as he's laying there awake, I, I could be absolutely going stir-crazy, or I could focus on you, God. And the reality is that no trial that we face should keep us from remembering God's faithfulness. I mean, all you have to do is reflect back. If, you, if you're a believer, if you've been a believer for a while, you just think about all the things God has done for you. If you look at the, the first Roman, or capital A, as we see in this passage, when his thoughts turn to God, he lingers. He thinks, he reflects, he meditates on these things about God's faithfulness. When his thoughts turn to God, he lingers on God's faithfulness. We need to discipline ourselves when we're feeling hurt, wounded, overwhelmed, aching, breaking heart, to think about all the good things God has done for us. Just, it's, it's, it's an act of faith. It's an act of discipline to say, God, right now this thing just swirls around. It, it seems to be consuming me, but I want to I pause and, and purposely look back and recount all the things you've done for me. Letter B. We can also see that David reflected on God's past protection, not just on God's faithfulness to him, but his protection. And he can now sing for joy. You can see in, in verse 7 For you have been my help. And now, in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. I remember who you are, God. You're a faithful God who has ministered to all my needs. And so right now, because of remembering who you are, I'm going to sing for joy under the shadow of your wing. Um, probably not too awfully far from here. I'm trying to get my bearings. A couple of years ago, my son and I, we took a canoe trip. Just a one overnight, we, we started out near Ford Lake in Belleville, up near I-94, and we canoed the Huron River all the way down. I think he would have been seven or eight at the time. And we, we camped overnight, and then we came all the way down to the Flat Rock Dam. I don't know how close that is to here. Probably not real far. But when we got to the Flat Rock Dam, I, I don't know what caused it, but the lake was about this deep. I mean, I put my canoe in and I felt like I was in Louisiana, pulling through the bayou, you know. But but it was very shallow, but what that did, it let us get up very close, and we probably got too close to some huge swans. And I'll tell you what, when I, when I saw we were too close, I, I had to... Pull my way, couldn't paddle, pull my way back away. But those daddy swans about came unglued. And when they are huge birds, cute little swans, you know, but big. And they get, they got an attitude. They get angry. And he started, and flapping his wings and started coming right toward me. And I go, It's okay. We're out of here. It's all right. And, you know, it's a reminder God uses the image of a bird that would give its life to protect its young. It uses that as a a picture that God cares for us. He has a commitment, a faithful commitment to care for us, to protect us, to nurture us. And it's like God is the ultimate bird who keeps us under its wings. Now, the imagery obviously has limited value because God is not limited by time or space. No physical limitations. He knows everything. But like a bird would protect its young, In the same way, God protects and cares for us. And that's an image that David reflected. You know, even though I'm being surrounded, even though my my life is being threatened, I feel like life is caving in, Lord, you're still there. You know, the circumstances don't mean you've gone away. It just means you're there in my presence, ministering to me while life seems to be caving in. And he reflected on God's protection and could sing for joy under the shadow of his wing. The letter C, he is confident, and I'd say dependent, that God's strength will continue to sustain him. That his right hand upholds him. His right hand upholds him. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Um, my wife and I have three children. Uh, our children are now 28, 27, and the 11-year-old you heard about. And I can remember when our youngest was very small, you know, something scary would happen. You know, there's that instinctive reaction. <laughs> you know, grab grab hold like a vice, you know, and then you gotta to pry them off. At, you know, they're scared, something's tough going on. But there was security. There was an, a recognition that there was love and faithfulness. There was protection. There was commitment. And so when something happened, I cling to you. A child like a child would cling to his parent for protection to meet the needs to help them through the scary difficult time. David says my soul clings to you. I long to stay close to you to be dependent upon you. And he uses a picture to go with that. He says in, in the last part of the verse my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me. Now the right hand is generally, for most folks, considered the the hand, the strong hand. Uh, It would be the hand that you'd hold your tennis racket in, or if you're David, the hand you'd hold your sword in. And just like that would be a person's strongest hand, he says, your right hand, God, which is immeasurably stronger than any human being on earth. Your right hand, your, your greatest power, Upholds me. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing to realize that even at your best, there are things that affect you that are beyond your control. You know, you do, you do the best you know how, but there's some things you can't keep away from your children. There's some things you can't keep away from you and your wife just because we live in a sinful world. And yet, just like David said, I cling to you, and I know you will uphold and protect me that God says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that I will be faithful to those who are my own that I've chosen. I will protect you. I will provide strength to you. You think about it for just a moment. Some practical things. What can we do to help facilitate meaningful and prolonged reflection on God's past blessings to us? What can we do to help facilitate meaningful and prolonged reflection on God's past blessings to us? And here's just some simple ideas. I mean, we know that we've got to look back in our life and focus on all that God has done for us because that's a part of keeping our heart and mind right in the present challenges. What, what are some things that help us to focus back? I mean, we all have short memories. I think mine's getting shorter than it used to be. But, but if, we, if we take the time and the effort how can we fuel our heart to be better prepared for hard times? One, one idea is keep a journal or a diary. Um, you know, I mean, most of us have probably gone electronic and I think diaries are a little harder to keep than they used to be. We're not prone to think that way, but keep an electronic journal. But record past observations and reread them. Think, think back about things God has done to minister to you, lessons God has taught, uh, ways God has provided Or or do something like this. I'll call it a structured life review. Relive past memories, all right? I'm not talking about living in nostalgia land forever, but it's a good thing to stop and think back. You know, maybe you could do it by life phases. Um, Think back about when I was a youth. What were the ways God ministered and protected me and cared for me when I was a youth? What about in my young adult years? leading me to a godly spouse or or help me find a good church? Or what about my child-rearing years or my empty nest years or my golden years? Just think about those things. Just How has God been there working and ministering through all those times? Maybe it would be by life spheres of thinking about how God ministered to you over the years in terms of health. When you went through a health crisis, how God sustained and encouraged you and gave you grace to get through that trial. Maybe it would be some employment challenges. And you know how even when you were out of work, people from the church loved you and they, somebody dropped off those groceries on that porch. Somebody did it. They didn't just show up from Kroger. Somebody put an anonymous envelope in the hand of the pastor and said, Pastor, make sure they get that. And they never know who it came from. God knows. And you think about those things, how God can minister and meet needs, how God meets the needs of our heart, not just external needs, or family or church ministry. Or even even try this. Do a scriptural review. Think about some key Bible passages and just reflect, wow, this is what God wants me to remember. How does that passage apply to how God has ministered to me in the past? How God has sustained me? And then use those promises from Scripture to just saturate your heart so that when difficult times come for you or for somebody you love and care about, you're, you have truth principles, you have truth memories to share with others. The reality is that in this passage we are reminded that no trial should distract us from contemplating God's presence. No trial should keep us from remembering God's faithfulness. And time won't allow the last one, but I'll just give you the blanks real quickly. No trial should cause us to forget God's coming judgment, verse 9 through 11. The fact is that ultimately, in David's case, even when bad people did bad things to him, he he realized that wasn't the end of the story. That ultimately there is one who will only and always do good for us. That all good things flow down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness or changing. And ultimately, letter A, the enemies of God, my enemies who oppose God's servant, will eventually receive their proper reward or punishment. Verse 9 and 10. Letter B, opposition and hardship will not rob him or us of our joy in God. Letter C. Believers will one day open their mouths to glorify God when the mouths of those who oppose God, the mouths of liars, according to the text, are stopped. Obviously, it's not, it's not for us to resort to retaliation or vengeance. God takes responsibility for meting out justice. Uh, we should not yield to cynicism. God will righteously deal with sinners in his own time, in his own way. Don't get cynical and disgusted. Just God knows best. And we should not fall into despair because God has not failed us nor forsaken us. And I I think this would be a good verse just to to read as we close because actually the last part of this verse, Hebrews 13, 5 to 6, is quoted from the Psalms recorded for us by David. Keep your lives free from the love of money that is living for this world in all its pleasures and pursuits and prestige. And be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And here's the quote from Psalm 118, verse 6. So we may say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Because ultimately, God, no matter what happens around me, no matter what piles up and weighs me down, the trials of this life are light compared to the heavyweight glories that God has waiting. These trials are short compared to all eternity that God wants to bless my life. And so I will remember, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Never ever will I leave you. Never ever will I forsake you, God says. And, and that's a good, good thing. I think sometimes that there's a temptation to say, well, I don't want to think about it. Tough times. I don't want to think about bad things because sure as I start thinking about them, it's going to make them happen. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, God knows the days and the hours of our life. He knows what he has purposed in our life and in the lives of our family and friends. And the fact is, we can't control what will happen to us, but we can control how we will respond to it for the glory of God so that our lips will praise him and that we will be strengthened and sustained, not to become bitter and discouraged, not cynical, but to be rejoicing and strong and gracious and joyful, even in the midst of really hard times. And I hope when you think about difficult times or when you see somebody else going through difficult times, remember how God sustained David. Maybe different circumstances, but it's the same God and the same truth that will meet your needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and grace to us. Lord, we don't like trials, plain and simple. But by faith, we realize that you do choose to use them to bring glory to yourself, which is the ultimate fulfillment of our lives. And Lord, even in those difficult trials and testings, we know that you are forging character and perfecting our spirit so that we can grow to be more Christ-like, which is your eternal purpose and commitment in us. Lord, we thank you that we need not fear hard times, but that we can still have joy and peace and grace and strength if we'll reflect upon you instead of letting our hearts be torn away from your presence, and that we'll reflect on your faithfulness to meet our every need, knowing that ultimately any wrongdoing Will ultimately be resolved and properly cared for. Father, we thank you and pray you just bless these dear folks here at Community Baptist Church. We thank you for your word and how you allowed your servant to go through this for our admonition, as well as for his own strengthening and glorifying you. And we'll thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, blessed you are dismissed. Thank you.